0: Hello and welcome to the iChief's podcast series brought to you by the International Association of Fire Chiefs. This is where new ideas are born, leadership skills are discussed, and engaging topics are brought to the table. I'm Tom Jenkins, Fire Chief
1: of the City of Rogers, Arkansas, and a past IAFC president. And I'm Joe Powers, the Managing Director of IAFC's consulting firm, Emergency Services Consulting International. We're glad you're here. This podcast is designed for you and for the fire and emergency services community.
0: Before we dig into this week's important topic, make sure to check out our library of episodes at iafc.org slash podcasts and listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you think the content is great, go ahead and share it with your crew. All right, today we're discussing an incident that could have had catastrophic consequences for the city of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As with any fire chief, there are some incidents of consequence and of significance that really tax your leadership ability and the way in which we deploy the resources that we have within our fire departments and use mutual aid and automatic aid. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about one of those incidents that certainly uh, was taxing to the city of Winston-Salem and we're excited to have a conversation with one of our industry professionals. I'm joined today with my friend Joe Powers who uh, will introduce our guest.
1: Yeah, thanks Tom. Yeah, today we've got Trey Mayo, the fire chief of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's a uh, he's a 33-year veteran of the fire service um, and he's been with Winston-Salem for, uh, for just over eight years. Um, chief Mayo, can you give us a little uh, Give us a little description, a little story about how you made it to uh, um, to Winston Salem.
2: Yeah, I started in the fire service um, in 1989 as a volunteer, like a lot of folks in the fire service, and um, went off to college and graduated. And my mom said, you know, you can you can move back home for a few months, but you need to get a job. Uh, so there were a few career fire departments in the state uh, that were hiring. I had. You know, like I say, I've been around the fire service all my life, and uh, I applied with three three fire departments, sort of in the center of the state, and I was hired in Raleigh. I spent 11 years with the Raleigh Fire Department, uh, left there, and went to be the the uh, deputy chief in Carborough, which is in southern Orange County. Uh, stayed there three and a half years and I was hired as the fire chief in Rocky Mount, which is more in the Eastern part of the state and spent four and a half years there and uh, was was fortunate enough to be offered the position here in winston Salem in January of 2015.
0: Now, Chief, you've had a distinguished career uh, working for several different fire departments. Um, I'm curious, on, on the night of January 31st, your department experiences an incident like it has never faced before. What uh, what can you tell me about Winston-Salem, first of all, in terms of the resources it has? How big is it? And then uh, tell us a little bit to set up this incident that occurs uh, that evening.
2: Uh, city of Winston-Salem, we're 200 and might as well call it 250,000 people, 248 and change, uh, 132 square miles. Uh, we are uh, about an hour and a half uh, west of Raleigh and about an hour north of Charlotte. Uh, on the night of the fire, we're getting ready to open our 20th station, but on the night of the fire, uh, have, you know, 19 fire stations, our minimum uh, daily staffing is about 90. Um, and that puts us as, you know, we're not a small fire department, but it, the, the term that I like to use is we are, we are an undersized fire department. We do not have enough people working relative to our peers uh given the risks uh and, and given our geographic size uh, we're a we're a 23 engine eight ladder fire department and we staff 18 engines and five ladders um we do not do we, we we do medical i don't like this term but we do medical first response we do not have transport ambulances um on the night of the fire we had uh a little bit of snow left on the ground from a from a previous snow event. We don't have a lot of snow in Winston Salem, but uh, about dark, uh, got got the you know we dispatched a, our standard first alarm commercial building fire assignment to uh, Weaver Fertilizer uh, and everybody. You know, we, so we, we have various mechanisms of notifying. Command staff of building fires on the initial alarm, and you know when you see forty four forty north Cherry street pop up um, you know everybody pays a little more attention than what they otherwise would be because we know what's at forty four forty north cherry street um, weaver at the time of the fire according to Weaver representatives who were in the command post with us for the for the week of the event. Uh, They are one of three fertilizer were one of three fertilizer facilities in the country who did what they did. Um, And that is they were in the custom blending uh, fertilizer business for large growing operations, tobacco farmers, uh, Christmas tree farms uh industrial vegetable growing operations that sort of thing that they, they did some bagged product and they had about 5000 tons of of bagged and pelletized uh a palletized finished product on the on the site uh on the night of the fire but the, but their big business was was bulk fertilizer in large quantities uh for 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 again for those large growers that, that they I mean, you can see their products but you know, 50 pound bags of 10, 10, 10, at Lowe's Home Depot, Ace Hardware, that really wasn't the meat of their business.
1: So, so I understand that the, your incident started on, on the night of the 31st of January in, in 2022. And then uh, you guys were able to get it under control in February, on February 4th, you know, what five days later, it looks like. Um, talk to me a little bit, and that's a, that's a really long incident. So talk to me a little bit about how did how did you partner with you know with Weaver Fertilizer? How did you how did you
2: create those relationships, or were those relationships already created you know before the incident happened? Weaver's been there eighty two years, uh, so we 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 know those folks. Uh, you know, we're doing uh, annual code enforcement uh, in the facility. The 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 stations that would respond they on, on an initial alarm they're familiar with that facility. They do regular tours. Um, uh, but, but yeah, on the night of the fire and and I don't, we had, um, you know, what you would call, what you would call kind of standard employees, you know, plant workers, uh, in the command post with us on Monday night. We didn't have, that was the 31st, uh, kind of se- more senior executives didn't show up until, uh, Tuesday morning, but, uh, what we kept so somebody, somebody from Weaver was in the command post with us, um, for for at least you know during business hours eight to eight to five or something like that uh tuesday wednesday thursday and friday uh until we declared the event on we we declared the event under control about lunchtime on friday february 4th um just to you know just to have somebody there it it wasn't until uh mid-morning tuesday when we got sort of uh a an official uh, estimate of the amount of ammonium nitrate they had on site from from one of those company executives. Uh, what we what we had, and we have tier twos and, and things like that. And and again, we do we do inspections and 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 um, and walkthroughs of that facility. But you know what we had on Monday night, the night of the fire, was is that we have two bins, and what they call a bin is if you imagine going to a a um like a sand and gravel and mulch place these three sided um you know most of the time they're concrete sort of a retaining wall is what it is built to, they sort of look like jersey barriers that's not exactly what they are but you know it's essentially there to keep a skid steer from pushing mulch off the back of the pile well that, that's that in 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 the in, in the fertilizer industry they refer to that as a bin and the ones that At Weaver were not concrete; they were wood, and they have two. They had two bins in that building that uh, each with a capacity of 300 tons. So that's what we were working on, working with in terms of information Monday night was that they have two bins in the building, and each with a capacity of 300 tons. It was not until Tuesday morning, mid morning, about 10 o'clock, that um, we got more official word from company executives that they had approximately 500 tons of ammonium nitrate uh, between those two bins in the facility when the fire started. So I guess back to answer your question, we kept those those weaver reps in the command post, uh, you know, close in case we had questions like that, um, you know, for informational purposes for, for uh, incident commander and fire operations. So, and real quick, uh, what
1: to build on that just a little bit from a pre-pre incident planning standpoint and a in a like you said a code enforcement standpoint. How did that How did that affect the operations? You know, with with having folks you know on the scene or on the um, on the property in years prior. Did that Did that affect your operations at all? As a you know, with your I don't know if it affected your initial command operations or your ongoing command operations.
2: What. What helped us uh, in in the particularly those those first ninety minutes was we have uh, so we have a hazardous materials team here we have responsibility for all of Forsyth County by contract, um, and we had uh, a couple of our more progressive hazmat folks who were listening to the event. Um, and both of them called me uh, shortly after I arrived on scene. Uh, actually, that, that's not accurate. One of them called me, the, an assistant chief called me, and the other, the captain, was texting me uh, various various pieces of information. But um, that, that was the biggest benefit, is we had those two folks who were very familiar with the product, very familiar with the facility, and the assistant chief who I had on the phone was referencing the uh, uh chemical safety board report from West Texas. Um and you know, with, with the two of them uh consulting uh, the the operations chief and the emergency manager uh who were both on scene, uh, you know, we, we huddled up there and it didn't take us but three or four minutes uh to decide that we had been there an hour and a half. We had applied about 600,000 gallons of water by that time um, at, a, at, at our peak uh, at about 6,500 gallons a minute, and uh, we were not making any difference in the fire. In fact, it was getting worse, uh, and we decided it was time for us to check out.
0: Well, that has to be a... Yeah, that's a heavy decision for, you know, red blooded firefighters to make to say, hey, this is a non intervention strategy, we've got to back out. But it seems that uh, you mentioned West Texas, and you think of Beirut and what happened in Texas City that, you know, it's very prudent decision making how what in the command post, you know, take us there was was there a lot of debate? Was there some back and forth about whether or not, um, you know, that was an appropriate strategy at the time? Or you know, what were some of the lessons learned, you know, there in the heat of the moment?
2: So we, we do not have a mobile command post. So this would have been, you know, at that point in the event, this would have been a command post established, you know, essentially at a battalion chief's uh, vehicle. Um, I, my se you know, I didn't go around and poll everybody after the event was over. Uh, but, but at that point, we had about two-thirds of our own duty resources committed to that event. So that had been about 65 uh, personnel. And uh, we, were, we were at three alarms. My notion is that everybody there knew we didn't need to be there. But they were waiting for somebody to make that call to say, we, we, we've made a valiant effort. Let's check out. Um, and, and I think, uh, although you couldn't, you couldn't hear it, uh, you didn't hear it on the radio, you didn't, you know, you didn't hear this, this massive sigh across the, across the, uh, across the scene, but I think it was, there was a sense of relief, um, when we said, you know, you know, when we, when we issued the order, the incident commander issued the order to evacuate, and and we moved with a purpose, you know, matter of fact, we left, uh, we, I think we left an engine and two ladder trucks behind just because, and about 5,000 feet of hose on the ground because we did not deem it worth the effort, you know, you know how fire trucks at an event like that sometimes get boxed in, you know, you have to unhook hoses and bed ladders and, and get them turned around. And we just did not, we, we decided it was not worth the effort to take that additional eight or 10 minutes that it might, that it might have required to do that uh, to get them out of there. Um, so you know, again, Tom, I, I think I'm, I think I'm answering your question. Is, is everybody knew that's what we needed to be doing. It's just that, as you indicated, that's a difficult decision to make. But you know, you know, as a fire chief, that's what we get paid for is to make decisions. And you know, making the best decision is not the same thing. Is making a good decision. Sometimes you have a bucket full of bad choices. You still got to make the best the best choice out of that bucket of bad choices.
0: They should make that an EFO course tray, a bucket of bad choices.
2: <laughs> but, but, you, but you know what I mean. I mean, how many totally times agree. as fire chiefs, you know, not, not to repeat myself, but how many times do you have to make a decision and there's not a good decision to make? But you still have to choose something. So you, you pull back.
0: I mean, and this is, this is a, this is impressive. This is good stuff. And, and there's another version of this. That's, you know, a scary thing where you don't pull back. So, you know, history's on your side to say, we've got to get out of here. What, what happens then? Cause you're talking about large scale evacuation of, of citizens too, right?
2: Yes. We evacuated a mile radius around the plant. Um, which is uh you know for, for western Salem is not terribly um, densely populated, uh, but we do have two hundred and fifty thousand people in in um, in one hundred and thirty two square miles. so a mile radius around that plant, the first eighth of a mile around that plant is all commercial. There are no residential occupancies within an eighth of a mile of that facility, but then when you reach out beyond that, um, there are sixty five hundred residents in that one uh, mile radius uh, away from the plant uh, there are schools there is a prison there uh, is a rehab facility uh, you know post offices you know all you, you don't really realize all the things that you know if you just arbitrarily draw draw a one mile circle in your city you don't think of all the things that are in that one mile circle until you um, until you you know you see a list of it and and we had uh, GIS support uh, that night who was was feeding us that information in the command post, so we pretty quickly had a map. Uh, we knew what we needed to evacuate. We use a program called SARTopo S A R T O P um, O, and uh, so we could sit in the command post uh we we at that by about nine o'clock so initial alarm was about seven by by nine or nine thirty we were set up uh in a facility and I need to talk to you Tom about uh an e o c and an incident command post that i think is valuable information for the listeners but we'll we'll get to that um but we set up a, we we have a uh a community partner uh who who happened to have a building 1.1 mile from the from the Weaver plant that they had just purchased uh to expand their office operations and they I don't even know how that communication happened but I mean within 10 minutes of us uh, ordering the evacuation of the plant, the you know the fire department evacuation, um, we knew where we were going and we had access to this to this office building uh, that that was not set up as an EOC, but it was well laid out for an EOC and incident command post. And I know those are two, those are different things, um, uh, but but we were able to assemble there and and start working and. We could uh you know back to the evacuation, so that's where we were that's where we were set up with Incident command uh, in that building, and uh, with Sartopo running and, and, a, and an evacuation map, um, by um, about two a m we had put fire trucks and police cars on every street uh, in that in that one mile radius. And we could track all that with Saratopo to make sure we had we had covered all the streets. Um, we um, were using so the city of Winston Salem. We have a marketing and communications department. When I when I left the scene, I called the marketing director. He met me at the command post, uh, so he took over um, the um, the the public side of of the evacuation. You know, news media, social media, uh, the you know what what we kind of generically know as a reverse 911 system, and we also used uh, you know we all get the alerts on our cell phone when uh, you know there's an amber alert or a forecast you know flash flooding or whatever we get we get those alerts on our cell phones we activated that. You have to have authority from the state of North Carolina to be able to do that. And that was the first time in Forsyth County, oh, that, that, uh, that wireless emergency alert, uh, had ever been transmitted, um, for, you know, for, for a non non scheduled non routine event like this. Um, so that's the way the, the evacuation was carried out. You know, we had to set up, uh, Sheltering, uh, you have to have, you know, mass care. Uh, the, we we pulled in our traffic field operations. That's a different department for barricading. You pull in your public transit for getting folks evacuated who have no access to to um, to transportation. But you know, you have folks who don't have cars. You have folks who are in wheelchairs. You have folks who have COVID. I mean, there is a, for the course of that week, you know, we had 44 agencies um, assisting and, you know, we were serving uh, meals to uh, about 50 people. Uh, you know, each time a meal hour came around, we were serving 50 meals to folks in the command post.
1: So from a community standpoint, it was a, it was a huge event. And from a, uh, from an operational standpoint, it was also a huge event. And, and, uh, um, You guys did an after action review and and looked at everything that had happened, you know, in with clear eyes. And now, you know, know, weeks and months later, you're you're developing recommendations to move forward. What's one of those things that came out of that after action review that um, that for Winston-Salem you're moving
2: forward with? A a couple of things. Uh, One is we did not declare a state of emergency because it wouldn't have made any difference operationally. Uh, It wouldn't have qualified us for any state or federal funding, but it would have made uh, a difference uh, as best we can determine if we and we did not uh, we did not use the term mandatory evacuation. We did a voluntary evacuation in North Carolina. There is no definition of voluntary or mandatory evacuation. And my experience growing up on the coast is that when you when a when a when an authority having jurisdiction says we are issuing a mandatory evacuation, what they mean is if you choose not to leave and you have a problem and we are not going to get going back to go get you until the event is over. And 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 that was my frame of reference. And that is generally for hurricanes. Uh, along the coast of North Carolina. And that is not, and I remember being part of the conversation in the command post about voluntary versus mandatory. And I did not want to communicate to residents that if they didn't evacuate, that we were not going back to get them. And we didn't, Uh, throughout the course of the week, if there was a fire call, if there was a a fire request for service, if there was a law enforcement request for service, we answered those requests for service inside the one-mile evacuation area. For medical calls, we sent a pumper in, and they took the patient and put them on the fire truck, and 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 evacuated them out to the edge of the of the one-mile evacuation area and handed them off to EMS. So, um, what and the reason that's a lesson learned is because what I now know is that. Uh, there are um, what's called loss of use clauses in, in, in some people's property insurance policies. And if you use the term voluntary, the insurance company does not pay that loss of use. The authority having jurisdiction has to use the term mandatory for that loss of use to kick in in people's uh, insurance policies. So, people who would have qualified for not being able to go to work or uh, you know, loss of wages, hotel rooms, meals, uh, deductibles still apply. But the insurance companies did not pay in most cases because we did not use the term mandatory. But again, I didn't want to say we're not going back to get you if you have a problem. But uh, in hindsight, I think the greater good would have been served if we had if we had said mandatory. The other lesson learned is, um, so in Winston-Salem and Forsyth County, we have a space that we refer to as an emergency operations center. We have a mobile command post. That emergency operations center is a multi-purpose space that's probably 2,000 square feet uh, in a building uh, that also houses a sheriff's office. Uh, so it is a secure facility. You just cannot walk in and out. Uh, but that space is not set up to walk into and start operating at a moment's notice. That space is designed when you have the seven or eight days notice that there's a hurricane coming across the Atlantic, uh, that you have an ice storm coming in three days. You know, it takes hours to set that space up, to put in telephones and computers and, you know, uh, network cable drops and all that sort of stuff. It it can be done and it's made to do it, but it's not made to have to be dispatched to a fertilizer plant fire at 7 p.m. and walk into that EOC at at 8.15. And and that is is a major... and, and And the mobile command post that we have is a law enforcement command post and it is not adequate for running fire command on a scale that we were running it over a week period you know we finally um, about six days into the event it was after we had declared the fire under control we got a mobile command post from the state of north carolina that is essentially a double wide modular uh, manufactured home it's, it's on that scale um, and that that that's more in line of what you need when you have you know when you say you have a mobile command post if it's a converted RV or a bus you really don't have anything that's truly functional and if you have an EOC that is also a space where you have retirement parties and you know department head meetings and whatever else that goes on in that space you really don't have an EOC and that that's the big thing that I would tell fire chiefs out there you know because I've given this presentation in in uh, in live settings, and I say, you know, if you have an EOC, put your hand up. If you have an EOC that you can walk into right now and start operating as a full-blown, fully functioning EOC, keep your hand up, and you wind up out of a room of 50 people, two or three people are left with their hands in the air. So, um, that's that's the lesson learned for us and and we've already had some conversations that involve the city manager about closing that gap um and and, and i and I, i'm certainly going to do my part to push to see that that gap gets closed uh, because the hurricane eoc is not the same thing as the 500 tons of ammonium nitrate eoc
0: those are great takeaways chief and i uh I have no doubt that in your 33 years of experience on the fire department that this had to be one of those incidents that you, you, you just probably never thought would happen, but the, this, the sheer magnitude of lessons learned here, especially with the emergency management piece, whether it's the command post, the EOCs, the mandatory versus voluntary evacuation, um, you know, it's very interesting because it's just stuff that's not necessarily in the fire chief's manual you know besides operational stuff that that Joe asked you about I'm, I'm kind of curious from a leadership perspective you you've been involved with the executive fire officers program and um, I know from knowing a little bit about this incident and knowing you pretty well that you know this is a this is a tough incident to to manage personally from a leadership perspective if if, if I was to ask you Trey if, you know on on January 30th the night before is there anything that you wish you would have been better, you know, suited to, to think about, or is there any, is there anything that, that, that to other fire chiefs out there that are listening to this podcast that you would encourage them to think about or educate themselves about from a leadership perspective, knowing that you can be 33 years in and see the, you know, the most challenging fire of your career clearly. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that as we close up.
2: Yeah. The, so you know we didn't do a bad job and operationally um those those forward facing things that the public saw if the same event happened tonight um we would do 95% of the same things but we had to you know we did some things that um that, that it may have taken us 18 hours before we said oh you know what we need to be doing this that or the other um, and just, you know, kind of off the top of my head, um, you know, do you have an assembly area for guests? You know, the governor shows up, the secretary of crime control and public safety shows up, the, the, the state insurance commissioner shows up, the, the state senator representatives show up, and all those folks did over the course of the week. Do you have a place for those folks to assemble or are they just milling around in the command post or the EOC wherever they happen to show up? You know, do you have a media assembly area? Do you have parking at your EOC or command post? Do you have parking or do you have parking for fire trucks and ambulances and the things that we had at the command post um, for that for that? for, for that week, you know, we were fortunate that facility that I told you that office building we set up in that was owned by a record company. So they had parking for wreckers. Well, if you can park a record, you can park a fire truck. But, you know, if your EOC or command post is downtown Dallas, you know, in a nine story building with a parking deck and you need to get fire trucks in there can you do that and I I don't know I don't know the answer I know that at at, at our what we call an EOC parking fire trucks is a challenge you know can uh, you know you're going to get inundated with donations can you handle that or do you have somewhere you know we threw away a lot of food unfortunately because we didn't have anywhere to refrigerate it you know we but but, you know, in day three and four, we said, hey, well, this is more food than we need. And we started taking it to homeless shelters and, and soup kitchens and that sort of thing. But we threw some food away because we didn't have refrigeration space for it. And it was more than we needed to eat. Uh, you know, we, we don't have a cache of cell phones for people operating into various positions in the EOC or command post, and again, I know those are different things, but but you need a cache of cell phones for the folks operating, so they're not using personal cell phones. Or like our battalion chiefs, when they change shifts, they hand off those cell phones. So when you know if I need to call Battalion One, I don't have to look and see who's working. I just call Battalion One, and it rings with the on-duty battalion chief working in in, in Battalion One. And, and, and that's why we hand those phones off but you can't be handing phones off when you're when you're operating in in the command post um, do you have access to drones we flew drones 24 hours a day for five days nine agencies had drones in here largest drone uh, activation in in the history of the state of north carolina and i realize that's not saying much given that you know drones are relatively relatively new technology but um if you declare a uh so about 3 hours into the event we asked for a no fly zone in that 1 mile evacuation area well when the FAA sets up a no fly zone you can't fly drones and i don't mean you're not permitted to fly drones into that area. I mean, the drones will not get off the ground. And I don't know how they do that, but we had two agencies on scene with us three hours, three or four hours into the event uh, after we had asked for that no-fly zone. And the FAA has some ability to, to, to communicate with drones, and those drones would get about three feet off the ground and land. And, and 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 it took us a while to figure out that, hey, these drones are not flying because we're trying to fly them into a no-fly zone. And we had to get special permission for those drones to not be getting that communication from the FAA so that we could fly them in that no-fly zone. But if you've got nine agencies flying drones, you need an air boss. Um, You know, you need to be sure that folks who are supposed to be submitting tier two reports, you know, there's no real legal authority to make sure that people are submitting tier two reports. Um, But you almost every jurisdiction has some facility that is supposed to be submitting tier twos and tier twos are not a magic bullet, but they do, do give you some idea of what people have and in what quantities. Um, so you know, I, I don't. I guess I should stop here. Uh, you know, I've got some other things that I can mention, but I don't want to run us over on time. Uh, so you all tell me.
0: No, this is fantastic, Chief. We've been visiting with Chief Trey Mayo of the Winston Salem Fire Department, and his 33 years experience on the job is eight years there as chief, and discussing what had to be a, a, a career-making incident from January 31st. 2022 we appreciate all the insights today chief and most importantly we appreciate you sharing with us and having a conversation that could benefit our listeners on this podcast thank you so much for being with us today
2: absolutely tom uh both to you and joe i've I've appreciated it and enjoyed it uh you know and i would just in my closing comments i would say that an event like this is a lot a lot goes on, particularly in the first two or three hours. And uh, you know, fire chiefs, even with 33 years in the business, and and I, you know whether that's a rural or a big city, uh, you need to check your ego, surround yourself with good folks, and uh, because you do not know it all. Uh, every every event, uh, no matter how many big events you've been in, been been involved with, every big event has. Some some little nuances and um, and you need to have good folks around you who can work, who can help you work through those those uh, those nuances.
0: Well, having been to Winston Salem, I have no doubt that you had the best there that night. And uh, as another fire service professional, if I can say that, um, I always have admired your leadership ability and the the character with which you lead organizations. And uh, this particular incident is not uh, doesn't lack for any examples of that. So you can check out what Chief Mayo is doing in Winston-Salem by visiting his department on the web or looking at their Twitter. And that's at City of WS Fire. For all of our listeners out there, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify wherever you're listening to us today. If you like the content, leave a rating. Last but not least, recommend this podcast to other chiefs in the business. We're made stronger and better by listening to colleagues, especially those like Trey, who can share with us an incident of significance and the lessons learned to do so in a manner that is conversational. Thanks for joining us today. We'll talk again soon.